There's a saying by Martin Luther. It's often quoted by preachers and theologians. You might have heard it before. Justification by faith, Luther says, is the article by which the church stands or falls. Unfortunately, as with many famous quotes, there's no evidence that Luther ever said these words. The first recorded instance of this saying is, in fact, in the writings of another German theologian named Balthasar Meisner, who lived about a century after Luther and who called this saying a proverb of Luther. Now, but whether or not Martin Luther ever said these words exactly, it is very close to some things he did say, and it does well reflect the importance that he placed on the doctrine, this teaching of justification by faith. And Luther wasn't alone in his estimation of that doctrine's importance. John Calvin, the other great Protestant reformer, called the doctrine of justification, he called it the hinge upon which religion turns. Similarly, the famous Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, the one who composed the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, he referred to justification by faith as a most wholesome doctrine. And he dedicated one of the very first homilies that were sent around to all the English churches in the 16th century. He dedicated one of the first homilies to the subject of justification. But what exactly is justification? And what does it mean to be justified by faith? And why did all of those pastors and church reformers think that it's so terribly important? In this session, I'd like to take a stab at answering some of those questions by looking at what the Apostle Paul has to say about this subject in Romans chapter 4. Now, to understand this chapter, you really need to go back to the, the final verses of chapter 3. Remember, as we talked about in the last session, up until and even really through the beginning of chapter 3, Paul had been steadily driving home the bad news of human sin, that sin corrupts and it destroys humanity, that it provokes the wrath of God, and that, that every human person is implicated in this story of corruption and guilt. All have sinned, Paul says in verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God. And then finally, after demonstrating just what a crisis we all find ourselves in, Finally, Paul shares the good news of what God has done in the person of his son by putting forward Jesus Christ as an atoning sacrifice to bear the righteous anger of God in our place. Then, after Paul makes that announcement, he goes on and he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's the central claim that Paul is unpacking. Then in chapter 4, what does it mean to be justified? And, and what does he mean by saying that this comes about by faith and not by works of the law? Now, to answer these two questions, Paul then turns to two Old Testament examples, Abraham and David. That Paul should have picked Abraham, it would come as no surprise to his original readers. Abraham is, after all, he's one of the most famous characters in the whole Bible. And he was regularly regarded as one of the greatest models of a righteous man by Jews. And sometimes Abraham was cited as a, as a perfect example of how God rewards those who live just and right lives. 
The book of Sirach, for instance, which was an important Jewish text written just two centuries before Paul. Well, here's how Sirach describes Abraham. Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High, and when he was tested, he proved faithful. Therefore, the Lord assured him with an oath that the nations would be blessed through his offspring, that he would make him as numerous as the dust of the earth and exalt his offspring like the stars. In other words, Abraham did right by God. He obeyed God's law even when he was put to the test. And in response, because of his obedience, God rewarded him with the, the promise to make him a great nation. At least that's how Sirach seems to interpret the story of Abraham. Paul, on the other hand, reads it very differently. And notice what he says in Romans 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a quotation from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And already it shows that Paul is thinking about Abraham differently than Sirach. Because Sirach talked about how Abraham acted in a righteous manner, but Paul is interested and how Abraham trusted in God, and how God, in response, reckoned or counted, as he puts it, how he counted it to him. Now, the language here, this language of counting or reckoning, it's a sort of juridical language. It's the same term that you would use of a judge declaring a verdict of whether someone is in the wrong or in the right. And that's, that's what interests Paul, because Genesis doesn't say that Abraham was righteous and God recognized it. No, it says that Abraham trusted God, and for that reason, God judged him to be righteous. And so on that basis, Paul concludes that Abraham's righteousness wasn't something he earned, it was a gift. And then just to show that Abraham isn't some weird anomaly, some exception, Paul turns to another famous example, King David. Now, you got to remember that while David was a very good king, he was also a very great sinner. Remember that instance with Bathsheba? In that one instance, he violated almost every single one of the Ten Commandments in a single go. And the scripture that Paul cites here is a psalm, Psalm 32, that David wrote where he's talking about being a sinner and about just how blessed or just how blissfully happy is the person whose sins are forgiven. Again, some of the rabbis in Paul's day would have said that only Jews or only those who live truly righteous lives can expect to experience such forgiveness. But Paul disagrees. He doesn't think that David's description of forgiveness applies just to the people who were good. After all, isn't that what he's been getting at for the previous couple chapters, that there aren't really any genuinely good people, at least not by the standards of God? So no, it isn't just good Jews who get to know the happiness David describes in Psalm 32. This applies to everyone who puts their trust in God, because that's what justification means. Or at least that's what Paul is using it to mean here. When Genesis said that God reckoned Abraham as righteous, that's basically the same thing, according to Paul, as when David talks about the bliss of having his sins forgiven. That's what it means to be justified. Of course, Paul doesn't stop there. 
as you continue to read on through the rest of Romans chapter 4, you'll notice that that he continues to unpack the story of Abraham more and more and draw lessons from it about how it is that you and I can experience God's salvation. And as always with Paul, there's a lot that can be said about his discussion here. But I want to focus our attention on the main point that he's trying to make. And to do that, I'd like to use two Latin phrases that are often often used to summarize the essential teachings of the Protestant Reformation. Sola fide and sola gratia. Now let's start with the first, sola fide. Now translated into English, sola fide means by faith alone. And it's used to encapsulate the reformer's insistence that human beings are saved by faith rather than by works. In the late Middle Ages, it was sometimes said that in order to be saved, a person needed to do as many good deeds as possible. Go to mass, do penance, visit relics, go on pilgrimages, give to the poor. In contrast to that, Martin Luther and the other Protestant reformers said, we aren't saved by what we do, but simply by faith, by trusting in what God has done for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, Paul, of course, Paul's not thinking about medieval Christian spirituality when he writes Romans 4, but he is making a very similar point. Notice how many times he talks about faith. He mentions it 15 times in this chapter alone. Again and again, he says that what saved Abraham, what made Abraham right with God, it wasn't his good deeds. It wasn't his works. It wasn't even his willingness to obey God's command to circumcise himself and all the males in his household. All of that happened not before, but as a consequence of the main thing. The only thing that Abraham really did, according to Paul, was believe. God had made him a promise, and Abraham trusted God to keep that promise. He trusted in the goodness and the dependability of God, even when it seemed impossible, even when he and Sarah had both grown old and the promise of a son seemed completely physically impossible. Abraham was still, Paul says, he was still fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that, that simple act of trust, that is what made him right before God. Abraham was saved, as the reformers would have said, by faith alone. And that, that leads very naturally to the other Latin phrase, sola gratia, by grace alone. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. And then again in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You might remember what I said about justice in our very first session, about how it was understood in the ancient Roman world. Justice for the Romans was a matter of rendering to each person what he or she was due. To those who do well and work hard, reward. And to those who do evil or slack off, punishment. That's the kind of transactional logic Paul's appealing to here 
when he talks about giving the one who works their due. But remember, that's not the form that God's righteousness takes in the gospel. That's not what we see in the life of Abraham. Abraham experiences the kindness and blessing of God not as a result of his hard work, not as some kind of payment for the good works that he's performed, but simply as an unearned gift. And that's what's meant by the phrase sola gratia. That phrase is supposed to serve as a reminder to us when we forget that our salvation, our righteousness, our standing with God, it's not a reward for hard work or religious dedication or good behavior. Just like Abraham, we experience the kindness and the blessing of God as a gift. We are saved by grace and by grace alone. That's what the doctrine of justification by faith means. That's why Martin Luther and John Calvin and Thomas Cranmer and all those other church leaders thought that it was so important. Because if Paul is right, then that changes everything. If Paul is right, then it means that the world isn't just an arena where good people succeed and bad people fail. If Paul is right, then that means that we don't have to carry around the burden of guilt or shame for the things we've done and the things we failed to do. If Paul is right, then it means that we too can experience the same freedom, the same bliss that David felt when the weight was lifted off his shoulders and he knew that his sins had been forgiven. Or the joy that John Newton felt when he wrote those words, the Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. I sometimes hear that this message of Paul's, this message about justification by faith, that it's not as important or pressing as it once was. Because we're not living in the same time as Martin Luther or Thomas Cranmer. And that people, not, they're not agonizing over how they might be forgiven of their sins or how they might be made right with God in the way that they, they once were years ago. Well, that may be true. I certainly don't think that, that many people in our own contemporary secular age, I don't think that many people know the grief that King David felt as he meditated on his transgression, or the anxiety that Martin Luther experienced as he asked the question of where he might find a merciful God. People today, they might not live with a conscious awareness of the crisis of sin that Paul describes in the early chapters of Romans. That's all true. But that doesn't mean that the message of justification by faith has lost its relevance. After all, while we may not use the language of sin and judgment much these days, that doesn't mean that people aren't anxious over this issue. People do care about whether they've succeeded or failed at life. It does matter to us whether, at the end of the day, whether or not we're a good person and what other people think of us. Why else would we spend so much time and energy trying to cultivate an image of ourselves or an image of our families as happy and hardworking and always on the right side of things. It's because deep down, 
we all care about, to use the biblical language, we all care about whether or not we are righteous. And so it still comes as good news to hear that, on the one hand, no, we aren't righteous. And there's nothing we can do to change that. But on the other hand, that God can, and God has done something to make us right. And that all we have to do is to trust in what he's done and receive the gift that he is offering us. Our failures can be forgiven. Our faults can be made right. Not by our own effort, but by grace and by faith alone. That's Paul's message in Romans 4. That is the good news of justification by faith.